Good morning. I have a couple of questions for you. Uh, I don't think you'll want to answer out loud, but uh, answer to yourselves. How many of you think that if you just read the Bible more, prayed more, fellowshiped with the saints more, then you'd be more of what God wants you to be? How many of you think that if you just uh, quit smoking or lost a little weight, then uh, you'd be more of what God wants you to be? Now, if you answered yes to either of those questions, you're in very good company because many Christians uh, struggle with uh, answers to those questions. But uh, you would be what Paul would call bewitched. Uh, maybe even bewitched, bothered, and bewildered. And it's that that Paul is concerned with in uh, this chapter this morning. Would you turn with me to Galatians 3? It struck me once how misguided our thinking is when I realized that uh, until the 15th century, hardly anyone had access to Bibles. That's when Gutenberg printed the first Bible. Prior to the 1400s, uh, the only time you, you had a chance to get into the Word, as we put it, uh, would be when you went to church on Sunday morning and the Scriptures were read to you. Uh, most Bibles then were hand-copied. They were chained to the wall in monasteries and a few libraries. Only a few very wealthy people, people could even afford a Bible. So very few Christians had an opportunity to read the Bible. Even Paul recognizes uh, that fact when he wrote to Timothy and he said, give attendance to public reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, because hardly anyone had access to the Old Testament scriptures at that time or the writings of any of the apostles. And yet we feel guilty if we uh, don't read the Bible every day. Or we feel that uh, somehow we're off-center spiritually and God can't use us and bless us if we're not fellowshipping with the saints or we haven't... Uh, logged sufficient time in prayer, but if we really believe that that's what makes us authentically Christian, we're legalists. We've been bewitched. Now let me read the first verse of chapter 3. You foolish Galatians. As I said last week, uh, I, I've always preferred uh, J.B. Phillips' translation of that uh, that statement. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, he says. Uh, the word uh, literally means people who don't think. Uh, people who tend to be superficial in their, in their thought life. It's the same word that Jesus used when he was walking after the resurrection. And he's walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he said, oh, foolish men. Uh, slow to realize what the prophets have, have written has to do with uh, superficial thought. Paul says, uh, you Galatians, aren't, uh, you aren't thinking. Someone has bewitched you, he says. Who has bewitched you? He uses a word here that means to blight with an evil eye. There were magicians in Paul's day, and he's probably referring tongue-in-cheek to that practice. Someone has put the hex on you, he says. 
Now, the interesting thing is that the who here, the pronoun, is singular. You would expect a plural pronoun. And you would think that Paul would be referring to those uh, false teachers who had insinuated themselves into the churches in Galatia and were teaching legalism. But uh, I don't think so. I can't be sure about this. But I think Paul has his eye on the enemy that was behind the teacher. The evil one, the one who is the consummate liar and murderer, the one who deceives us, who tells us uh, lies, and who wants to murder, destroy, kill, if not our body, then our soul. And uh, this person behind the scene is the one I think that Paul is mostly concerned with here. I, I hope you know that Satan can be very, very religious. Paul in 2 Timothy refers to some of his agents, some of the seed of Satan, who have a, a form of godliness. They look very good on the outside. Have all the ritual and the rigmarole and the liturgy down, but there's something missing. The heart is missing. Satan either wants to drive you away from God or he wants to preoccupy you with your spiritual life to the point where all the joy is wrung out of your life. He's the arch-legalist. Uh, if he can't make you a drunk, he'll make you a monk. Uh, he'll drive you into asceticism and, and disciplines and regimens and, that we impose upon ourselves that are, that are just killing to the soul. They just wither us. He's, he's behind all the legalism that, that gets introduced into into Christianity. You have to do this, you have to do that, you must, you should, you have to, you ought to. And he just uh, snuffs all the life uh, out of God's people. Now, the, the, if the culprit is Satan, the cure is the cross. You see how Paul puts it? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Uh, the word that Paul uses for clearly portrayed is uh, the word to describe these heralds that would come to town and they'd unroll an edict from the king and nail it on the wall and, and then they would announce uh, what the king had to say. Hear ye, hear ye. Uh, your sins are forgiven. Paul's predominant message, central message, was the cross. When he went to Corinth, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Corinthians were very sophisticated, highly educated people imbued with Greek thought. And yet Paul wouldn't match swords with them intellectually. He didn't try to debate the philosophers in Corinth. He just came and talked about Christ and specifically the cross because the cross is the answer to everything that plagues us. The cross is the answer to our guilt. The cross is the answer to our post-conversion guilt and the legalism that, that kills us. Because what happened at the cross was this. Jesus internalized all the sin of the world. He took all of your sin, all of my sin, all of your past sin, all of your present sin, and all of your future sin was placed upon him, and he became the guiltiest man on the face of the earth. He was made sin for you and me. Jesus said, and God said, you're guilty. You're guilty. That's why uh, those words were wrung from Jesus' lips 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? Actually, he knew why. Those words were not addressed uh, to himself. That was not a cry of frustration. That was a moment of truth. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. He's quoting from the Old Testament, from one of the Psalms, in which the psalmist goes on to say, because you're too holy to look upon sin. You see in Golgotha, or in, uh, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus shrank from the cross, it was not the pain of the cross. It was not fear of the cross that drove him. It was fear of the cup that he had to drink, which was the cup of the wrath of God. For the first time in his life, he experienced rejection by the Father. The Father turned his back on the Son, and he walked away. And he hung there with all of our sins placed upon him. And then he said what I think is the greatest word in the New Testament. And in the Greek text, it actually is one word. It is finished. Now, he didn't say, I am finished. He wasn't talking about his own death. He was talking about the work which he came to do. God's plan to bring salvation to the world was finished. Everything the prophets had predicted... Everything that Jesus had done, the whole life of dying that characterized him was crowned by his death on the cross. And he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Which uh, means, men and women, we cannot add a cotton-picking thing to what Jesus did. Not one thing. It is a done deal. Now, that was, uh, that was Paul's message. That's why he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear. But we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. That's the good news. You and I don't have to work for our salvation. It's finished. Now, Paul goes on to argue from their experience, verses 2 through 5. I would like to learn just one thing from you, he says. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? He raises uh, four questions. Uh, the answer to all of them is the same. Paul says, I want to hear one thing from you. And then the answer that he expects is that they, all of these questions can be answered by one, one word, faith. Faith. First question is, how did you become a Christian? How did you get into the family of God? Did you work for it? Uh, did, you, uh, did you give alms? Uh, how, how did you become a believer? Uh, a number of years ago, I was in Cuernavaca, Mexico, and I saw a dear elderly woman crawling across the plaza in the center of Cuernavaca, making her way to the steps of the cathedral that stood at the end of the, of the plaza. 
leaving little drops of blood behind her where her knees scraped on the cobblestones of, of the plaza. This dear woman was trying to do something to make God notice her, be pleased with her, be acceptable to her. Paul says, is, is that the way you became a Christian? Number of, any number of times I've sat across from men and I've explained the gospel to them and and they've simply believed it, sitting there. They've, they've prayed some prayer of invitation and they've asked Christ to come into their lives. And everyone's experience is a, is a little bit different, but uh, the light comes on very often. You can see it in their eyes. And I had one man say to me, I just feel clean all over. Well, how did, how did, how did you get there? How did you get into the family of God? Was it through some strenuous self-effort, self some work that you did? No, you just, you just believed it. Think back on your experience. And then secondly, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by, by human effort? Here he's talking about the second step in the process, which theologians call sanctification. That is, the process by which God begins to clean up your life, begins to rid you of the things in your life that are annoying to you and and cause concern to him. How, how does that happen? Does it happen by self-effort? Is it by pulling up your socks and, and uh, clenching your fist and uh, gritting your jaw and deciding that you're going to get this thing done? How did you deal with, the, with some of the habits that, that uh, afflicted you early on and, and some of the uh, uh, ungodly responses to those around you? How were those things dealt with? Was it by faith? Or was it by self-effort? And then the third question is, have you suffered so much to no avail? Uh, the word suffered here can also have the idea simply of experiencing something. And here I think he's talking about uh, the, the attainments, the spiritual attainments in our life. In other words, uh, as you look back on your life and you see the progress you've made spiritually and you can say that that. By God's grace, I have been able to deal with some of the issues in my life that were of concern to me. How did that happen? Was it by self-effort or was it by faith? We used to have a door jam in our home on which our three boys' growth, uh, their, their growth uh, pattern was, uh, uh, was indicated. And uh, every six months or so, we'd have them stand against the door jam and we'd measure off how much they'd grown and, I still remember uh, our second son, Brian, who was only about three or four at the time, and he had a, an immense growth spurt uh, between his third and fourth year, and he must have grown about that much. And, and I marked it off on the door and wrote his name and the date by the mark, and Brian backed off and looked at that and compared it with the prior mark, and he said, my, how much I've grown, he says. And uh, you look back on your on your life, and you see some of the habits that had claimed you, and some of the sins that dominated your life and uh, you can see that some of those are being dealt with uh, I can look back 10 years or so to some of the issues in my life that were of so much concern to me and uh, they still occasionally are, uh, plague me but I can see progress my how much I've grown I say when I look back well how did that happen is it through some effort of my own no, it's because God has been at work to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then finally, the last question is, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? 
or because you believe what you heard. And here he's talking about uh, ministry and how we serve one another within the body of Christ. These people had been given, as we have been given, the gifts of the Spirit. That is, those divinely uh, bestowed gifts by which we serve one another within the body of Christ. Gifts of service and counseling and teaching and helping and and giving. And the word that uh, Paul uses here for giving of the Spirit and giving of gifts is a word that means to pour it on. Literally, well, the root of the word means a chorus, and then it came to to mean uh, to outfit a chorus. And then it meant to throw a lavish party. And what Paul is saying is that when God throws a party, he throws a party. And he pours his spirit out upon you. He fills you and floods you with the spirit of Christ so that you're able to, uh, to minister to others. And you are not disqualified because of sin. Oh, we have to deal with sin in our life. We... We can't overlook it. We need to repent of it. We need to judge it and call it what God calls it. But uh, we're not disqualified because we're struggling. Because you don't have to be perfect to minister to people. My goodness, who of us would minister? There are many times I get up here and I think, Roper, what right do you have to talk to these people? Remember that uh, gross thing you did this last week? Probably nobody in the congregation did that. And uh, what right do you have to stand up here and, and talk? Well, see, that's legalism. That's all it is. It's legalism, pure and simple. It's the evil one saying there's some standard that you have to measure up to before you can serve acceptably. Paul says, no, no, no. All that we do is done out of faith. It's God working in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it's a good exercise to think through. How did you come to Christ? By faith. How are you growing? By faith. How is God dealing with sin in your life? By faith. How do you minister? By faith. That's the one thing that Paul wants to know from the Galatians, and it's the one thing that he wants to know from us. Now his uh, uh, his second argument is from Scripture, and that's always that puts us on a little more solid uh, ground. Uh, it's always been interesting to me that in Second Peter... Peter is singing his swan song. This is his last will and testament to the church. And uh, the point of that whole book is the importance of Scripture and the need of proclaiming it. And Peter says a very interesting thing. He says, when we were on the Mount of Transfiguration, we saw the Lord's glory. We saw the Lord. And then he says in the very next verse, and we have the more sure prophetic word. He wasn't even counting on his own experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. He went back to the word. So that's what, uh, that's what Paul does. He takes uh, us back to the Old Testament. Verse 6. Consider Abraham. This uh, great uh, giant of a man from the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham is described as the friend of God. How did he get to be God's friend? Was it through a lifetime of good works and, and solid effort? Consider Abraham. He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, he was justified. God said to him, not guilty. You'll notice that uh, sentences in quotes. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now let me explain what Paul is doing. He's saying to these, uh, these people who were teaching that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Uh, that we need to go back to the Old Testament and evaluate the source from which you're making that claim. Now, remember, these people had gone to Galatia, where Paul had preached grace, and they were subverting his gospel. They, they had another gospel, which Paul says is not, it's not really another gospel. It's not good news. It was, it was a message of law. You have to be circumcised to be saved. And they were trying to prove their point from the Old Testament. Now, this is what they were doing. Now, consider Abraham, they said. Uh, Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, he was uh, a pagan, probably uh, worshipped the moon, uh, ran a string of donkeys out of Ur of the Chaldees. If he lived today, he'd be a trucker, or at least the head of a trucking company. He was a very wealthy man. And uh, God spoke to him one day and said, Abraham, uh, I want you to go to a land that I'll show you. You just trust me and I'll get you to the right place. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to enrich your life. I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to make you a blessing. And through you, the whole world will be blessed. So Abraham went to uh, the land of Palestine, and he pitched his tent there, and he lived there for a number of years. And after a few years, God said, all right, Abraham, now we need to seal this relationship. And uh, the sign or the seal of the covenant that I've made with you is circumcision. Now, circumcision was nothing new in that uh, part of the world. A number of nations in the Middle East circumcised their children. But uh, circumcision was to have a new significance. In Abraham's world, it was the sign of God's ownership. It was the sign of, of that covenant that Abraham had made uh, with God. And uh, these Judaizers, as we call them, these people that were trying to make Jews out of the Gentiles, were saying, okay, you Gentiles need to be circumcised. And, and here's why. Because all of Abraham's sons were circumcised. That was the mark of descendant, uh, descendancy from uh, from Abraham, you had to be circumcised. So to be a true Jew, to be a son of Abraham, you have to be circumcised. And what's more, you Gentiles, and here they address themselves to this mostly Gentile church in, up in Galatia, you Gentiles have to be circumcised too. That's how you become a son of Abraham. That's legalism. Uh, the counterpart today, I suppose, is baptism. It's all right to accept Christ, but you have to be baptized in order to be fully accepted. Or you have to go to church every time the doors are open. Or you have to read the Bible 30 minutes a day. Or you have to memorize scripture. And we have all these disciplines and regimens and legal requirements, which if we do, will then put us in God's graces. Paul says, no, no, no. You misread the book of Genesis. Now, I would encourage you to go home and read Genesis 12 through 17 this week. We don't have time to talk about it in any, any great detail. I simply want to point out 
that in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, Abraham, you remember I told you that I was going to make a great nation out of you and uh, you're going to have a child. Now, Abraham was 75 years of age, maybe 85. It's difficult to track uh, his age. Sarah was, uh, had been barren. She had not had any children. And now had gone through the menopause so that it was impossible for her to have any children. And God said to Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham says, oh, I know. I'm going to adopt Eliezer, my servant's son. God said, no, 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 no. You're going to have a son. And Sarah is going to be the mother of the son. I'm going to perform a miracle. This is the child of the promise. You know what Abraham said? The text says that Abraham, in response to that promise, simply said, Amen. I believe you. And Moses, who's the author of that text, does an odd thing with the Greek tense or the Hebrew tense there, and he it actually comes out, Abraham kept on believing. In other words, this was not the first time Abraham had acted in faith. This was simply one more time that he acted in faith. As Hebrews puts it, he hoped against hope. Abraham kept on believing, and Moses said, God said to Abraham, you're okay. You're not guilty. Or to use the New Testament theological term, you are justified. And Paul says to these Judaizers, you see, you did not read the text chronologically because chapter 15 comes before chapter 17. Anybody that can count knows that. And therefore, it was not circumcision that saved Abraham. It was his faith. Now, uh, turn with me back to Romans chapter 4. We read the first part of this text earlier. I want to read on. He quotes David's... uh, Words from the 32nd Psalm, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will. And here he uses that double negative that we've talked about before. Never, by any means, whatever, count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? David was a Jew, you see. He was circumcised. And you might might conclude from Psalm 32... Yes, this is true. David's sins were not reckoned against him because he was a circumcised Jew. But Paul goes on to say, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. Was Abraham circumcised when he was justified? No, he wasn't even a Jew. He was a Gentile, a pagan Gentile who had come to believe that God was trustworthy. He had put his faith in the faithfulness of God. And God said, this man is not guilty. Now, that's that's Paul's argument here in his conclusion. 
is in verse 9. So then those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of all faith. And in case there's any question about what this blessing uh, is that was promised to Abraham, he defines that blessing as justification. Read verse 8 carefully. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. What is the blessing? Justification. How does it come? Through believing, just like Abraham did. So we just come to Christ by faith, and you don't have to be baptized or catechized or simonized or any of those things. We just come and believe. Our initial salvation by faith, the process of sanctification is by faith. The work that God does in our heart is by faith. The work that we do within the body of Christ is by faith. It's all by faith. And we're in very good company because Abraham, who is example A of the man who is the friend of God in the Old Testament, became the friend of God. How? By works? No. By faith. Now, other things flowed out of his life as a result, but uh, the work that God was doing in him and through him was all by faith. Now, um, Paul then does an interesting thing in the next uh, paragraph, verses 10 through 14. He goes back to the Old Testament again. In effect, he argues this way. He says, all right, you're... uh, You made your case from the Old Testament. Let's go back to the Old Testament again and see what the Old Testament actually says. And he finds a verse, interestingly enough, that says that you can be justified by works. That theoretically, it is possible to be justified by works. That's what he means uh, in verse, verse 12. The latter part of verse 12. The man who does these things will live by them. That is, he or she will gain eternal life. Does what things? Does what the law requires. So theoretically, it's possible. Now let's read through verse 10. Verses 10 through 14, 14. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Now you see what he's doing? He's contrasting in this paragraph the curse with the blessing in the preceding paragraph. Now, if the blessing is justification, then the curse is to be pronounced guilty. Remember, justification is a legal term came out of the court courtrooms of that day. It basically means not guilty. You are not guilty. The converse is condemnation or cursing, which means to be pronounced guilty. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. They are pronounced guilty. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let's see what happens if we try to be justified by law. Uh, Potentially, it can be done. Theoretically, it can be done. What's the problem? Well, what Paul, actually what Moses did in this verse is to serve up a series of uh, high hard ones. Uh, He says... 
cursed is everyone who doesn't do everything in the book of the law. In other words, you have to keep the whole law. The whole law. The whole thing. From beginning to end. The law is like a pane of glass. You break part of it, you've broken it all. You've broken part of it, the rest of it's not intact. You have to keep all of it. Which means you can never commit adultery. You could never commit murder. You could never tell a lie. You could never bear false witness. You could never steal anything. And what's worse, you could never want to do any of those. Because that's what the commandment, thou shalt not covet, means. And that's, that's the commandment that killed Paul. That's what he, he says in Romans 7. I was doing pretty well. Never had murdered anyone. Never had committed adultery. But then it dawned on me, I sure had wanted to a lot of times. <laughs> and that killed him. It put him to death. See. So if you're going to try to be justified, sanctified, change your life, conform your life to his character, or minister by the law, you've got to do it all. Not, you know, we, we, well, I just want to add a little bit of law. No, no, you've got to add it all. You've got to add the whole thing. Furthermore, you have to do it. See how Paul puts it? He's quoting uh, the Old Testament here, of course, quoting Moses. You have to do everything that's in the law. So it's not a matter of wanting to do it. I mean, you have to do it, the whole thing. Furthermore, uh, this law is applicable to everyone. We think that when we stand before God, he'll look at us and he'll say, well, you, you know, you, that was an outstanding effort. You batted 400. That's well done. That's very impressive. In fact, you did so well, I think we'll just let you sneak in. Now, Paul says, everyone falls under this, this condemnation. Cursed is everyone who does not do everything in the book of the law. You have to do it all. Or to change the metaphor here from a baseball uh, metaphor, you know, it's not just three strikes and you're out. It's three pounds of the gavel and you're guilty. <coughs> uh the judge, we stand before the judge and he says to us, uh, did you do everything that's written in the book of the law? No. Uh, I know you had good intentions, but did you do it? No. Well, well, you're guilty. You're guilty. And the gavel comes down, you see. You're guilty. And the penalty is death. We're cursed. And we say, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul tells us, Christ was made a curse for us. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. You see, he himself took that curse. He accepted the guilt of our own sin. And he paid the price for it. So that we're no longer cursed. All we get is the blessing, the justification. 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And uh, Paul says the result is that we get the blessing given to Abraham. That is the same word of justification that was announced to Abraham when he believed God is ours. And you have to remember that Abraham was, uh, even at that time, uh, a sort of neo-pagan. He didn't, he didn't know much, you know. He was still struggling. He had a lot of problems in his life, but he just kept clinging to God with all he was worth. And God said, that's my man. That's my friend. He's justified. And furthermore, as Paul puts it, we receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, you almost, would, you'd, you'd almost have to be a Jew to appreciate that, that statement because Jews from the very beginning were looking forward to the promise of the Holy Spirit. Joel, the prophet, said that one of these days God's going to pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And on the day of Pentecost, when all those Jews were gathered, and Gentile proselytes and people from all over the Roman Empire were gathered in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, the the apostles and the disciples were in the upper room and the Spirit of, of God was poured out upon them and they, they, they ran out of that room into the streets and they began to speak in different languages and Parthian and Median and Elamite and, and uh, Greek and all the other languages of, of the Roman Empire. And uh, these people from the far, farthest uh, ends of the empire heard them and they said, we hear these people speaking in our own language, the mighty works of of God, which was assigned to them as something extraordinary was going on. And they said to Peter, what is this? Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that one of these days God is going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And a few months later, Paul, Peter was, was in the, the household of Cornelius, a military man, Roman centurion that had, that had sent to Peter for help. And Peter preached the gospel to these Gentile, uh, these Gentiles in this in Cornelius' living room, and by faith they received the message, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And Peter says, "It's happened. It's happened. The Holy Spirit is being poured out upon all flesh. Who can forbid water for these who have believed?" And, and he baptized this whole family and Cornelius' friends on the strength of the fact that the Spirit of God was poured out upon those people. And he's still today pouring out his spirit upon us. What do we get by faith? Well, we get justification. We get a declaration that we're not guilty. And furthermore, the spirit of God is poured into our lives by which spirit our lives are changed. And we can minister powerfully wherever we go. And all of that comes because because of faith. So um, it seems to me that there are always these two conclusions, two alternatives that we have to face. As Paul wrote earlier in this book, there is, a, there is the gospel, there's the good news of grace, and then there is what he called another gospel, which is not another. Uh, as I pointed out last week, C.S. Lewis says there are really only two religions in the world. There is the gospel of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then there's everything else. There's the message which Paul proclaims here in this uh, book, and then there's every other religion and cult uh, in the world. And and if you look at every other religion carefully, you'll see that that there's some mixture of faith and works. In some cases, it's all works. In some cases, it's a little more faith and, uh, and fewer works, or 
vice versa, but there's a little mixture of, of doing it yourself plus what God is doing for you. But the gospel, pure and simple, is that God is at work in you, both to will and to do of his, his good pleasure. So either we work it on our own or we come to the conclusion that this is a job for God and we turn the whole thing over uh, to him. I, uh, I am convinced that when people understand this principle, when they understand that we come to salvation through faith, that we grow in grace by faith, that we minister in faith, that people become freed up. That's why this book is called A Charter of Christian Liberty. There is an, an immense freedom that comes to us when we realize that, that God is the one who's doing, this, uh, doing the work within us. It sets us, uh, it sets us free. Uh, I was uh, talking to a friend of mine who, who uh, taught languages to uh, uh, exchange students at one point. And he was telling me that the worst language students are the people that, that try too hard, that are afraid to make mistakes. Uh, they construct paragraphs and sentences in their head, and they try to say it just exactly right, and they never gain much facility in the language because they're trying too hard. The best language students are the ones that uh, are willing to make mistakes. They're willing to venture themselves. They're willing to look foolish. And uh, I believe this is, this is what Paul is saying to us. Uh, there, there will be times that we will fail. There will be times that we will sin. There will be times that we'll embarrass ourselves, but that's all right. That's all right. We're forgiven. All we need to do is judge that sin and put it away and go on knowing that we're living out of that finished work that Christ has accomplished, uh, uh, accomplished for us. Now, in case there's any misunderstanding, I want to say a couple of things in conclusion here. Number one, it's perfectly all right to read the Bible. I'm not telling you not to read the Bible. And it's perfectly all right to, to assemble uh, together. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul says in Hebrews, or pardon me, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, no, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, you know that. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And uh, uh, prayer is the means by which we express our dependence upon God. Uh, th- these things are not wrong. They are things that we ought to be doing. But the reformers were right when they pointed out that prayer and Bible study and gathering together with other Christians is a means of grace. In other words, Reading the Bible centers us more and more upon Christ so that we can depend upon him. Prayer is simply the means by which we express our dependence upon him. We can talk to him about the things that concern us in our lives, the uh, struggles that we're having. We can lay our hearts bare before him in prayer. Assembling together is the means by which we are centered on Christ. I hope you don't come just to hear teaching. I, I hope you come in order to fellowship with the saints and to learn from them and to be centered on our Lord through our, our worship together. These times of assemblage are, are, are times when we're built up and encouraged in faith. But these disciplines, if we want to call them that, these activities, these efforts, are not the things that cause us to grow. These are the things that center us on Christ so we can, uh, 
so we can grow. Brennan Manning describes this grace that we experience as crazy grace. And uh, that's a good expression because it always does strike people as a little bit crazy when you first begin to talk about it. Whenever I talk about grace, invariably I get phone calls and letters, people frightened by what I'm saying, saying that if, if I'm not careful, people will uh, turn grace into license. And there's always that danger. Paul will address that issue later in the book of Galatians. But I'm convinced that if we really understand the grace of God, it's the means by which we begin to grow to everything that God has in mind for us.